Church, ask that you remain standing with me as we read our scripture passage for the evening, which comes from Luke 23, 1 through 25. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before, before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and then release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. May be seated. Wonderful. I'm so thankful that we get to just stand together and hear God's word being read. It's one of the most powerful things that we can do. I know you're all itching to hear what I have to say, but. That's why Paul told Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. It's amazing what God does in those moments when we're just reading His Word to the churches out loud. I want to encourage you guys as we get started to, uh, I've said this a couple Sundays ago, I want to encourage you to join our prayer ministry. Uh, a prayerless church is going to be a dead church. Uh, I don't know if you know that or not. Uh, I, I think I'm going to uh, steal a line from John Ed. He's back there in the back. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to write a book called Every Member in Prayer Ministry uh, sometime soon. Uh, but uh, I, I was actually being serious about that. Um, but prayer 
is, is our first thing we should be doing as a church, praying. You know, whatever Paul wrote to Timothy, and I just talked with the staff about this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He said, first of all, Timothy, pray. That's the first thing. If you want to be a church, you pray. First thing. And it was Jesus who said, my father's house is a house of preaching. House of teaching. House of singing. No. House of prayer. That's right. So in bad times you pray, in good times you pray, in hard times you pray, in lonely times you pray, in grieving times you pray. In persecuted times, what do you do? You pray. In confusing times, what do you do? You pray. When times are hard, you pray. And then Paul goes on to say, matter of fact, this is God's will for you. There's not many things in the Bible tagged with that line, this is God's will for you. 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. I was talking to uh, Louise and Danny not too long ago. You know, they're planning the First Free Methodist Church in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, and uh, I was talking with them. And uh, the amazing thing is they already have seven families that are apart. And some of those families are coming from a neighboring uh, uh, town right outside of Glasgow. So not only are they starting one church, they're starting two churches. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about that. Um, they don't even launch until January. I said, what have you been doing? He said, you know, we haven't been doing mail-outs and flyers, no marketing. We've just been praying, praying. Amazing how that works. And I think one of the key defining marks of a Christian church is that we pray and then we have the audacity to believe that God shows up and according to his will and wisdom, he answers. So I, I encourage you. We have uh, amazing prayer ministries uh, here. We, you know we have people who pray. It's called the hedge ministry. And they just pray during the service, not in the service, during the service for the service. Because we need that. I know I need that. I need that. We have people who pray with people at the altar. We have people who pray with people after the service. And so I, I'm going to keep putting that before you. I, I, I'm really wrestling with and praying about doing a prayer summit next uh, year. So uh, these guys who are on staff are sitting over here and they're just going, we didn't. We've never heard of that. I know because it came to me today. So uh, it's okay. It's all good. So where are we at in Luke 23 here? If you have a Bible, please go to Luke 23. I encourage you to follow along. Jesus, in Luke 22, has instituted the Lord's Supper. Of course, there's been this dispute uh, along with that of who is the greatest. Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny him, but all these things that are going to happen are going to happen to fulfill the Scriptures. Jesus goes out with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. We talked about that this past Sunday. And then we see the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, and we see Peter's denial of Jesus, which Michael did a fantastic job of talking about last week. In verse 63 of 22, we see the beginnings of Jesus being mocked and taken into as he is in custody. And then we see him before the council. In chapter 23, verse 1, the text says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him to Pilate. Now, the question is, who is the whole company of them? You go back to verse 66 uh, in chapter 22, and it says, When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both the chief priest and scribes, so there's two groups, and they led him away to the 
council, that is the Sanhedrin, and took him there and the proceedings started. So in, in verse 1, when it says the whole company of him, he's talking about the chief priest, the scribes, and the Sanhedrin. They arose and brought him before Pilate, verse 2, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, meaning the Messiah, and then he adds on a king. Notice that. He is saying that misleading the nation, he's saying he's the Messiah, he's actually claiming that he is a king. Now Jesus being brought here before these particular or this particular group of people uh, should not have caught the disciples off guard. In fact, Jesus was warning the disciples uh, that this is going to happen back in Luke chapter 12. And in Luke 12, Jesus is talking to his disciples, preparing them for what they're going to experience after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And in chapter 12, verse 11, it says, Jesus saying to the disciples, and when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers, and the authorities, do not be anxious how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. What Jesus was preparing his disciples for, and it's going to happen in the book of Acts, what Jesus was preparing his disciples for here, he is experiencing himself. You know, when the things that we go through in life, we, we have this one who's gone before us. And we have him as an example of how to deal with it. And so as the disciples are watching, hearing, learning about how Jesus walks through this whole ordeal, it's what sets them up and for how they're going to walk through the very same thing again in the book of Acts. So Jesus is brought before Pilate. They're saying that Jesus is forbidding them from paying tribute to Caesar, which shows you how the Jewish leaders of the day have already sold themselves out to Rome, right? Because now we have Caesar's emblem in the temple at this point, which it shouldn't be there. It'd be a blasphemous image, but they put it there and people can go pay tribute to Caesar. It's a way of Rome coming in and claiming this as their own. It's a way of the Jewish people kind of giving Rome a little room so they let them do their thing but it actually is defiling the temple and then not only that they're saying to Pilate that Jesus is claiming to be a king and here they're probably trying to play on Pilate's insecurity I don't know what you know about world leaders but you know when someone is a leader uh, in a particular area and they come and say hey you have a rival uh, especially in the first century most of the time they just killed the rival right and so they're saying, hey, this guy, he's saying he's a king. He's saying Christ, that's a religious term, but a king. And again, they're trying to provoke Pilate into making a decision here. Because Pilate is the only one in this area at this time, not the Jewish leaders, only Pilate is the one that can give the death penalty. Only Pilate. That's why the text uses an important word twice. We'll see it here in just a second. And it's the word urgent. They are urgent in this moment because they want Pilate to make a snap decision and go ahead and issue the death penalty. Verse 3, and Pilate asked him though, notice what his question was, are you king of the Jews? Are you king of the Jews? He picks up on that title. And Jesus answered him, you have said so. What a great answer. You have said so. Verse 4, then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, because now, oh, now the crowd is building. He says, I find no fault in this man. But verse 5 says, but they were 
urgent. There's the first mention of it. They were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Meaning from Galilee to here in Jerusalem. He's teaching all the people these things that we're telling you that he's teaching them. And again, they're trying to get Pilate to make a particular decision. Here's Pilate's problem. Pilate only cares about one thing. Only one. And that is order. He wants order. He didn't even care about peace. He'll kill anybody he has to kill to get order. Pilate really doesn't care about Jesus being a religious figure. That doesn't matter to him. As a matter of fact, in Pilate's thinking, being, you know, Roman and having a Roman religious background, the whole idea of God, or maybe a God coming down, intermingling with, you know, an earth woman, and then her giving birth to kind of a demigod type thing, that's, that's not out of the realm of possibility. Pilate doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about the religious side of what's going on right now. But he does care about order. And so when he says, when they bring him to him, they are being very urgent. They're wanting him to make this decision. They're wanting him to make the decision quickly. But as he's assessing it, as he's looking at Jesus and assessing it, he says, I find no fault in him. That's the first time he says it. So he picks up on something in the conversation. And in verse 6 it says, when Pilate heard this, this comment about Galilee, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Verse 7, when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time, because he had a palace there. When Herod saw Jesus, though, so Jesus makes his way to Herod. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, the text says, for he had long desired to see him. Because he had heard about him. So Herod, just like many in the crowds that Jesus has encountered as he's on his way to Jerusalem, Herod has heard all about this Jesus. He's heard all about the things he's been doing. So he desires, the text says, to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod's intrigued. Herod's heard about water to wine, maybe. Herod's heard about feeding thousands with a Lunchable, maybe. Herod has heard about maybe walking on water. These stories are spreading. Jesus' fame is spreading. What he's been doing is spreading. Herod's heard about people being healed, blind being able to see, lame being able to walk. Oh, Herod is intrigued. Now, Pilate, he didn't care anything about it. Now, you know, whatever the religious stuff, whatever that is, that's fine. I want order. Pilate wants order. Herod wants a sign. He wants Jesus to play the role of a magician. I've heard about the things you have the power to do. So could you do one for me? That's what he wants. The problem with that uh, goes back to Jesus' answer. So Herod is wanting to see a sign. Verse uh, verse 9 says, So he questioned him, him being Jesus, at some length. So Herod is really trying to get Jesus to do something, but he's also asking all kinds of questions. And again, all these people are standing around. But notice the text says, But he made no answer. No answer. Jesus just stands there. 
as Herod is asking all these questions, making all these requests of him, Jesus says nothing. A part of the reason why is because God does not manifest himself in doubt. There is a difference between an honest skeptic, someone who's really struggling, and someone who is testing God. Those are two different things. Two different things. Jesus has taught about this back in Mark, Mark chapter 11. He's teaching about the fig tree. Jesus tells the disciples, have faith in God in verse 22. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, in verse 24, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be Yours Now, of course, all of our... Now, that's taken out of context a lot. Our prayers are subject to, again, the will and wisdom of God. Absolutely. Absolutely. But notice the believing component that is there. What Herod is doing on this day is essentially the same thing you and I do. He is talking with Jesus. We call that what? Prayer. He is talking to Jesus on this day, but in this, he wants him to prove himself in some way. And many times, people do the same. God, if you're really real, then do X, Y, or Z. People pray that kind of prayer all the time. So you have two leaders here. One Jewish, Herod, one Roman, Pilate. And so you have one of them just wanting order. You have the other one wanting God to show off. Or God to prove himself as God. Or the Messiah to prove himself as the Messiah. But Jesus gives no answer. To Pilate, he just says, you have said so. To Herod, he says nothing. So notice what happens next. Verse 10. The chief priest and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. They cannot stop. They are just accusing Jesus constantly, constantly, constantly. Then Herod, with his soldiers, treated Jesus with contempt, and they mocked him because Jesus won't answer their questions. Guess you really are not God. Then what Herod does is they arrayed him in a splendid clothing and they sent him back to Pilate. So now we have this back and forth going on here with Jesus. But notice verse 12. Verse 12 says, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. That is an amazing statement. Herod, Pilate, become friends. For before that, that was definitely not the case. And the question is why? Why did Herod and Pilate become friends that very day, passing Jesus back and forth? How do you get one prominent Jewish leader in the first century, Herod, and a prominent Roman leader in the first century, Pilate, how do you get those two to become friends? They have nothing in common, by the way. Nothing. Except they live in close proximity to each other. The Romans are occupying Jewish territory. They're overtaking Jewish customs. They're disrupting Jewish worship. Rome is trying to expand their empire. But then you have this group of Jewish nationalists who are coming in. They're constantly fighting, constantly disrupting Roman rule and this so-called Pax Romana, the Roman peace that they're trying to spread throughout the world. 
So how in the world do you have these two people becoming friends in this particular exchange? And the answer is kind of simple. It is, in one sense, they have a common enemy now. In one sense, they have something in common and neither one of them know what to do with it. Or they have a common problem. We could call it that. And it all centers around Jesus, who he is, and then what to do with him. They're both interested in Jesus for very different reasons. Again, Pilate wants order. Herod wants a sign. He wants to see something. And then right here you have this, probably one of the most famous triangulations in human history. You probably know the definition of triangulation. One person put it, they said, it happens when one or both people involved in a conflict try to pull a third person into the dynamic. And if you've ever been around counseling or been to counseling or anything, triangulation is a, is a big part of that. It's when you try to get someone in, bring someone in, there's a conflict with someone, you try to bring someone in from the outside either to solve your problem or you're just trying to get somebody on your side. Or sometimes you're trying to deflect blame and responsibility. So you may have conflict with someone else and you say, well, it's actually their problem. It's not my problem. And here you have Pilate and Herod playing this game. Pilate is trying to pull Herod into resolving this conflict with Jesus. Herod's trying to pull Pilate into resolving this conflict with Jesus. And then what they discover is they become friends. And again, the question is why? Maybe Pilate began to gain some respect for Herod. Maybe. Maybe he did not just see Herod as some bloodthirsty tyrant, which he was. Maybe by passing Jesus back and forth, this was Herod and Pilate's way of kind of showing respect for each other's authority. Maybe that was it. Or maybe this was simple cooperation trying to solve a problem and they're acknowledging that both it is a Jewish problem and a Roman problem. I don't know. And we don't know. What we do know is they became friends. Something about this experience bonded them together and now they have something in common and that person they have in common is Jesus himself. So they become friends. But now Jesus is back with Pilate. So notice what happens. Verse 13. Pilate has to deal with this again. So it says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. And he said to them a second time, you brought this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him, notice, Pilate's looking at Jesus, after examining him before you, you were there, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. He says, look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish and release him. I'll do something, but I'm going to release him. And right there you have Pilate, a Gentile Roman ruler, pronouncing Jesus as innocent. Jesus is the innocent sacrifice that was slain for us. And you have it not just from somebody on the street. You have it from somebody who is smart and intelligent and assesses people well. He's getting pressure now for a second time from the Jewish leaders, the local Jewish leaders. But he says he is innocent. Again, in him making that pronouncement, he fulfills all kinds of prophecies in doing so. But then verse 18 happens. 
But they all cried out together. Remember all. Now you have the religious leaders are there along with the Sanhedrin, the elders of the people, the scribes, along with the Sanhedrin. A crowd is building. Now they all begin to cry out more. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who was thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Notice what Barabbas did, the insurrection and a murder. When you have insurrections and murders, you don't have order. What does Pilate want? Order. But now he's got a crowd wanting to release Barabbas who has no respect for order. Pilate's in a dilemma here. Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting. They kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 22, a third time he said to them, why? Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will punish and release him. He says that again. And then notice what they do. Verse 23. But they were, and there's the word again, urgent. They were urgent. You know, whenever, second time the text has mentioned that, whenever you're trying to force your will to be done in life, it's always going to create an unhealthy urgency in you. Always. Because you've got to make it happen. But whenever you're walking in God's will for your life, there's going to be peace. That's how my mentor used to tell me all the time, Chris, follow the path of peace. Follow the path of peace. Because when we're trying to force our will, as the crowd now and the religious leaders are trying to do on Pilate, there's a sense of urgency here that is unhealthy. And whenever you're in that state of urgency, you do not make good decisions, right? But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And then this line, and their voices prevailed. And their voices prevailed. Jesus is disrupting social life. That's what Pilate's concerned with. He's disrupting religious life. That's what the religious leaders are concerned with. And the problem with Jesus is that he just likes to disrupt both. He really does. But notice it's the religious people who get loud because they're not getting their way. You ever been around somebody like that? They don't get their way and they start throwing the biggest holy hissy fit you've ever seen in your life. Holy hissy fit is a biblical term, by the way. Everybody with me? I mean, they get mad, they're defiant, they're loud, they're raising their voices over and over. They just won't let it go, won't let it go, won't let it go. That's unhealthy religion 101. Standing right there before Pilate and they will not be quiet because they're not getting their way. Jesus has a way of disrupting our religious life and social life. But the text says their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted and he released the man that had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. And he delivered Jesus over to their will, it says. 
their will be done. They forced it to happen. You know, uh, sheer force can get you some things in life. You can force your will to be done in that sense. Doesn't mean it was God's will. Now, whenever we look at all of this, I think part of the question is, what is going on? What do we say about all of this that's taking place? And I want to do this quickly. But I think to understand the events that are taking place right here, I think we have to go to Acts chapter 4. Because in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23, we get the early church's interpretation of what's taking place between Herod and Pilate. So in Acts 4, verse 23, Peter and John have been thrown into prison. Jesus said it's going to happen. Remember when you're drugged before the rulers and the authorities. I Don't worry, I'm going to be with you. I, I'm going to go through it before you, but I'm going to be with you. The Holy Spirit's going to be there. It says, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Notice that. They didn't go get a lawyer. They went to a prayer meeting. They raised their voices together to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. You have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Man, they start their prayer in the book of Genesis. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do nations rage against uh, rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. There they're praying scripture. Verse 27, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city, this city, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Here's how they interpreted the events. Verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Here we see how the early church interpreted these events taking place. Where it looks like the will of the people is going to prevail. And it does. It does. In one sense. But they saw this moment as a moment, yes, of sheer unjust evil, but it was sheer unjust evil being redeemed by the providential hand of God. Most movements, like all of them but one, in the first century, when the leader dies, guess what happens to the movement? The movement dies. But not with Christianity. Because the early church saw God at work in this moment. And instead of panicking, they said, Jesus told us this was going to happen. Not only was he going to go through it, we're going to go through it. So our response to this moment is going to be to pray. So notice how their prayer shifted in verse 29, Acts 4. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see, instead of falling into despair in this moment, not only with what has happened to Jesus, but now the disciples are being called in before the same group of people. Instead of falling into despair, they instead have this holy desperation. Instead, they have this holy dependency on the hand of God to move in powerful ways. And see, we find ourselves bat battling our tendencies when we want to be like Pilate and control our environment. 
Or we find ourselves being like Herod saying, God, I need you to prove yourself to me again. Are you really there? Instead, the early church saw this moment as a moment that God providentially orchestrated. And it built their faith instead of weakened their faith. You could read just this portion, and then if you go on into the crucifixion, which we will next Sunday, you could just read this portion, and it looks like God's losing. My friends, that's not how the early church saw it. In all of this story, and all the different characters in play, and all the positions that they have, and all the voices of all the people against Jesus, definitely in the minority Jesus was, they see it as a victory. And I think the same needs to be true for us. I think we need to make sure we don't fall into that place of being like Pilate, trying to just mandate order, or like Herod, constantly testing God, and certainly not like the religious, saying, God, my will, not yours. But instead, we see God's hand at work and let it build our faith and push us to pray even more and even harder. This prayer in Acts 4 is one of the most amazing prayers to me uh, that I see as this church in the book of Acts is getting started. Because what would have devastated most people, emboldened them, and they just said, Lord, would you do it again? The victory that you gave through all that pain, would you give it to us? And how much different would our life, would, would our life be if we'd pray that kind of prayer? Most of the time we just pray, God, no pain. But what if we said, there's going to be pain. It's going to look like those around us are winning. But Lord, we know you're going to win. So stretch out your hand and do mighty wonders. Amen. Father, we thank you for this portion of the text, of this story that changed history. Lord, it was Peter who denied Jesus three times. But he eventually came back. Pilate affirmed Jesus three times. But when his eyes got on the crowd, when he started listening to the crowd, instead of to Jesus, wow. Lord, once again, we're reminded that when our eyes are on your Son, we are safe. But Lord, as soon as we start listening to all the noises around us, that's when we get off. So as we come to this moment of Holy Communion, may our eyes be on your Son, your only Son, the only begotten Son, who went to the cross for us. May we see Jesus, just Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.